Could the Virginia Tech tragedy have been prevented if mandated outpatient psychiatric treatment worked better? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host. And with me today is Dr. Steve Lamberti. Dr. Lamberti is Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Director of the Severe Mental Disorders Program at the University of Rochester Medical Center, where he currently oversees schizophrenia treatment and research. His research is aimed at developing new treatment approaches for adults with schizophrenia, especially those at risk for repeated arrest and incarceration. Dr. Lamberti has published numerous articles on treatment of schizophrenia, and his work has received national recognition including the 1999 APA Gold Award and the 2004 APA Van Ameringen Award. Welcome. Well, thanks, Leslie. It's great to be here today. Steve, you're one of the nation's authorities on this subject. And, of course, people now say that prisons are now our biggest psychiatric hospitals. Is there really any validity to this? Well, I tell you, that's really the perception that's out there. It was really fueled back in 98 by that front page headline on the New York Times that said, prisons replace hospitals for the nation's mentally ill. But when you look at the data, what we do know is that the prevalence of mental illness is probably three or four times higher in prisons than in the community. What we don't know is whether this is new or not. Are these people with all sorts of criminal behavior or are these violent criminals? What do we know about that? Well, there are a couple of questions. One is the types of crime, and the other are the types of mental illness. Most of my research is focused on individuals with schizophrenia. And sometimes when you read the reports about the prevalence of mental illness, they're a little misleading. They make it sound like everybody in correctional facilities has a severe mental illness like schizophrenia. And we know that that's not the case. Many people are suffering from the levels of depression that one would expect within a correctional facility. So there's a question about the mental illnesses. As far as the crimes, most people for schizophrenia, at least, are arrested for minor crimes, Things like trespassing or disturbing the peace, minor theft, uh, things that I would sometimes consider survival behaviors, though on rare instances, a serious and tragic events do occur. Do they typically receive any treatment in jail? No, jail is not a good place for treatment. I can tell you a story of a patient of mine uh, about a year ago, a patient, and I'll call him Michael, somebody I was seeing at my clinic uh, once a week. And he didn't show up for his appointment uh, this one particular day. The next day, I got a call from his mother who told me that Michael had been arrested and incarcerated in our local jail. And she was worried because she told me he wasn't getting any medications. So I, I called the jail because I know some of the folks that work there. And one of them leveled with me, Leslie. He told me, uh, gee, Steve, you no, know he's not getting medicine because some of the folks here uh, don't think that these people should be getting their happy pills. Oh. So I think what we're seeing is that jails and prisons are not designed for treatment. They're designed essentially for punishment. But if we step back and look at the data, um, what it says is that about half of all mentally ill people in jails and prisons get treatment. That means half don't. And for the half that do, it's usually just medications. So it's not a good place for somebody with a serious mental illness. 
It sounds like there's great misunderstanding. Uh, anybody that would think an antipsychotic is a happy pill is a problem there. I would think finances would be a part of it as well. So many of the newer antipsychotics in particular are so expensive. Is that another excuse for not treating people in jail? Well, again, the most common treatment are medications. But I think that because of the costs involved and competing demands, that when there is money for treatment in correctional facilities, it gets used up pretty much by the medications, and there's not really money uh, or even political will to have the treatment go much beyond that. Now, if we switch back, I talked about the Virginia Tech tragedy at the beginning of the show. Of course, a lot of discussion since those events about mandated outpatient treatment. If the gunman in that case had gotten treatment, perhaps the tragedy would have been prevented. Is this really true? How well does mandated outpatient psychiatric treatment work in preventing future violent crime? Well, Leslie, the literature's really mixed. We've got some studies saying that mandated outpatient treatment works, and some uh, literature that says it doesn't. But as I look at the literature, it boils down to something surprisingly simple, that mandated treatment, it works only as well as the treatment provided. Because if we think about it, mandated treatment, there's a mandate and there's treatment. And in reviewing the literature, most states have mandated treatment programs or involuntary outpatient commitment programs that go by many names. What they all have in common is some type of uh, legal leverage or judicial authority, but that's where the similarities end. They can receive any type of treatment, including treatment as usual. So if somebody is in need of mandated treatment and you require them to go to the local mental health center which may or may not be comfortable treating people with felony histories, when somebody like that misses an appointment, it's easy for their case to be closed and for them to be labeled as noncompliant. And in that case, mandated outpatient treatment didn't work. Mm -hmm. But it's really a treatment failure. Now, you talk about legal leverage. What exactly is that? Well, it really means using legal authority to promote treatment adherence. And this is an extremely controversial area. The reason why I've ended up studying it is even though I'm averse to controversy, it's because it needs to be studied. Uh, Legal leverage is used every day in every community across the country. But there's so little that's written about it, a lot of debate about it, but not a lot of good research. We can think of legal leverage as having two parts. You know, one is the legal authority, the mandate, but the other part is beyond the, the legal authority, it's how you apply it. So if we think of legal leverage being like a hammer, you can build a house with it or you can drop it on your toes. Mm. It depends on how the tool is used. In the best case scenario, how would it be used? Well, I think that it has to be used in a way where there's a partnership between the source of the legal authority, and that could be a judge or a probation officer or a parole officer, a partnership between that person and the mental health professional a psychiatrist or a nurse, they have to collaborate. When there is a violation, let's say somebody who's mandated to treatment and mandated to stay off of crack cocaine goes out and uses, I think it's a mistake to have an automatic punitive response that this person has violated their terms and needs to go to jail. I think there needs to be a problem-solving approach where you might use as an opportunity to steer someone towards rehab. 
that problem-solving approach is more likely to happen if there's collaboration. Now, the third person is the consumer or the patient. And I think that when leverage is used, it has to be used in a way that's respectful and sensitive and that provides choice because otherwise people feel as if they've been coerced and are sometimes less likely to follow instructions simply because it's viewed as being unfair or insensitive. And another reason just to be angry at the whole system. Yes, absolutely. There's this whole concept that's evolving in mental health courts called procedural justice. And what the literature is showing is that if a person who's in a mental health court mandated to treatment, if they perceive the process is just, they might not like the decision, but they think it's fair, they're much more likely to follow through than somebody who feels like they're being treated in a way that's undermining or or disrespectful or unfair. So again, I think how we apply these principles is really key. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is the director of the Severe Mental Disorders Program at the University of Rochester Medical Center, Dr. Steve Lamberti. We are discussing serious mental illness and criminality. Now, Steve, let's run through the risk factors for criminal recidivism. One of the things I've noticed is that when we look at this question of why there are more mentally ill people in jails and prisons than we expect. Um, You have mental health professionals saying that the reason is because we don't have good enough treatment. And you have criminologists saying that this has nothing to do with mental illness or its treatment, that it all boils down to established risk factors for crime. And there are eight central risk factors, and these make sense when you hear about them. There are things like having a history of antisocial behavior or an antisocial personality, somebody who is angry at the world and who has a lack of remorse, family problems, unemployment, lack of leisure interests or hobbies, and drug addiction. Those factors have been shown again and again to be associated with crime in the general population. And I think the same factors apply to people who have mental illness. And obviously more so in those that have mental illness, you're more likely to be unemployed and have little leisure uh, activity or time. Well, Leslie, you bring up a great point because there's a big debate about whether people with mental illness commit more crimes than those without. And I think the criminologists are right that mental illness really doesn't have anything to do with crime with the exception of psychotic disorders. But for the most part, I think they're correct. The real issue is that people with serious mental illness, they do have higher rates of unemployment, social problems, drug addiction, the sort of factors that could drive anybody to commit crimes. So what is effective treatment? What does it look like if we're going to reduce crime that's perpetrated by people that suffer from serious mental illness? Well, I think effective treatment has to target the established risk factors for crime. So I I think that we have to, and when I say we, I'm talking about the fields of mental health and criminology. I think we have to reach a common ground that um, certain mental illnesses like psychotic disorders can cause you to get in trouble. Anybody who is psychotic and agitated, if they're 
in the basement of their parents' house, an ambulance will get called if there's a disturbance, but if they're at the shopping mall or if they're in a public place, the police will get called. So we have to understand that psychotic disorders are a risk factor, but we have to understand that there are other risk factors too, and our treatments need to target those risk factors. So medications alone are not enough, Leslie. That's one lesson here. We have to think about um, some of the new interventions that are being developed, like forensic assertive community treatment. And what is that? Forensic assertive community treatment? Oh, yes, fact. I get it. <laughs> it's the, the fact model. We're developing that here at the University of Rochester. We wrote the first papers on this model, and we're in the process of writing a grant to study the fact model. Uh, basically, it's combining competent, accessible care, and that's the assertive community treatment part. Well, I want to thank you today, Steve, for enlightening us on this topic. We've been discussing the relationship between psychotic disorders and criminal recidivism with Dr. Steve Lamberti. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.